there is, a, there is a statement about the Holy Spirit in the Nicene Creed that I think is really essential. It says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. It doesn't say he was created by the Father and the Son. The church fathers are very careful in this language. Who proceeds, that means that he comes from the same essence. It's sort of like this Jesus, the begotten Son. It's of the same essence as the Father. It says, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and Son is worshiped and glorified. So the Nicene Creed develops the idea that is that is brought into focus in the New Testament and is actually ambiguous in the Old. In fact, next week, we're going to actually look at the Holy Spirit in the, old, in the Old Testament. But I want to begin with his personhood because we function from this side of the cross and we are given the full picture of Scripture and Jesus helps explain who the Holy Spirit is. What is the Ruach of God? As Tim talks about that word for spirit in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, the pneuma, which both can be translated as breath or wind. The natural tendency, if you were to take that term by itself, is to turn the Holy Spirit into an energy force rather than a personality. The church fathers, in developing our creeds and our doctrines to help us understand the Bible in its fullness, were very clear to show us that the Holy Spirit is the third person in the Godhead, that, the, that our God... One Lord, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that God himself is a community within himself. When it says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, it means that as the third person of the Godhead, he comes now to dwell within the redeemed to make known the person of Jesus, the Savior of the world. The Holy Spirit is often referred to as the shy one in the Trinity because the Spirit's primary task as a person is to point us again and again to Jesus. So it's not wrong to not talk about the Holy Spirit as the, as the primary emphasis or focus when we talk about God. God has made himself known through human form, through the person of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's role is to again and again point us to the person of Christ. In fact, I think that that's one of the, the key ways that we actually test the spirits is does the spirit point us to Jesus? And in fact, I would not argue within extreme uh, manifestations of spiritual or supernatural activity within churches that it's real spiritual activity. I just don't always, I just don't always agree that it's actually works of the spirit of God because we are told that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities of darkness, and that the Satan himself uh, moves through the world counterfeiting, uh, coming to us as an angel of light. And how do we know what spirit is working? Well, it needs to be the Holy Spirit. And how do we know it's the Holy Spirit? Is that the Holy Spirit points us to the authority and, and fullness of Jesus. And so I think that this is an important reality for us because we can't diminish or relegate the Spirit to the Scriptures. I believe the Spirit wants to do more than what we're actually comfortable with, but I believe that in order to enter into that domain of how what would it look like for us to be truly Spirit-filled as a community, it needs to be anchored in a, in a strong 
biblical context that consistently points this community and those outside of the community to the person of Jesus. And so I, I want to share with you a quote. I think this is really powerful from um, A.W. Tozer. Uh, and he, he wrote that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is buried dynamite. Its power awaits discovery and use by the church. When he gets into the thinking of our teachers, he will get into the expectation of the hearers. When the Holy Spirit ceases to be incidental and again becomes fundamental, the power of the Spirit will be asserted once more among the people called Christians. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, he says, if you love me and you keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give to you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, another name for the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Is the Holy Spirit, in your personal experience as a follower of Jesus, the forgotten one in the Godhead? Have you thought of the Holy Spirit as a force to be wielded rather than God who should be worshiped? I want us to understand from the get-go that to be Spirit-filled is not to get more of the Spirit for the Spirit is a person. And when you were born again, you got all of the Spirit you'll ever get because the Spirit is someone, not something. To be Spirit-filled, when we're told be Spirit-filled, means that we are to be surrendered to His Lordship. And to refuse His Lordship in our lives is to grieve His authority and His ability to actually work powerfully through us. Jesus makes it clear and actually giving the masculine pronoun here to the helper. He says another helper, showing that he himself is already that helper. The word in the Greek is paraclete, helper, teacher. Uh, and he says, listen, another one like me is coming. Now, if you read through the Upper Room Discourse, what you find is this really powerful, uh, this F.F. Bruce called it the vanishing distinction, where in one moment Jesus is talking about the person of the Spirit, and the next moment he's talking about the Father, the next moment he's talking about himself, and there's this constant delineation, there's clear lines of demarcation between the persons of the Godhead, and at the same time a vanishing distinction because we're talking about three persons and one God. And, and I think it's important for us to understand that that is a mystery that we will never be able to get our heads fully around, other than the fact that the uniqueness of the personalities within the Godhead, their uniqueness is derived from their codependence upon the other. So the Father is the Father because of his relationship to the Son. The Son is the Son because of his relationship to the Father. And the Spirit is the Spirit because of his relationship to the Father and the Son. And their oneness, their unity, their singular desire to bring redemptive plans to fulfillment uh, in this fallen and broken world, and specifically in our lives as a community, is derived from a right understanding that we are not dealing with a force but with a person. So what I want us to consider today uh, is first the personality uh, of the Holy Spirit. Let's actually fill out uh, this idea that the Spirit is not a force, but a person. Uh, and then I want us to think about the nature of the Spirit as we consider uh, the seven symbols that are used to describe the Spirit's activity um, throughout the Scripture. So first of all, the personality of the Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verse 27, it says, Now he who searches the hearts 
knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Uh, phronema, the mind of the Spirit. It's a comprehensive word that has all that holds the idea of personality wrapped up in it. The mind of the Spirit. This is a person. He says, who knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. This is a powerful verse. The person of the Spirit, we're told, actually prays for you and I. Now, this is a, a, an amazing reality because we're also told that Jesus himself intercedes on our behalf. And that just shows how dysfunctional we are, that it takes two persons in the Godhead to make sense of our prayers. I, I like picture like the Godhead is like this three-person huddle. You're like, what did he mean by that? It's like, I think what he meant, you know what? It doesn't matter. This is what we think he should mean because we're God. <laughs> it's like, I, 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 what I want us to understand is that the spirit is a personality who cares about you, who loves you, who wants to make Jesus known in your life. He wants to bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said. He wants to teach you. He is a personality. And the marks of personality are what? Thinking, feeling, willing, acting. These are the marks of human personality. Now, I often say that I've been married for 20 years, uh, coming up on 20 years uh, in, on, in October. Um, Darcy and I have been together for 21 years. Uh, and, and the thing that I love about my wife, uh, as much as I think that she is the most beautiful woman ever, in fact, I went and saw that movie Baby Driver. Have you guys seen that yet? So good. Uh, and, and in that movie, they, they, it portrays like young love it's so perfectly where the first thing that Baby, the young guy, in the, in the, his name's Baby, that is such a good name. Uh, he, he tells the girl, the love, the first time he sees her, he just goes, you are so beautiful. And I was like, that is such a Hollywood moment. And then I'm like, but that's exactly what I said to my wife when I first saw her too. The first words out of my mouth, you are so beautiful. So I am not by any means diminishing the physical beauty of my wife, but that physical beauty is not enough to sustain any kind of actual relationship. What we fall in love with are, are the unseen qualities of the human spirit. It's her brilliance that causes me to fall even more deeply in love with her and makes me even see her more beautifully. It's her heart, the way that she feels things so deeply. It's her activity, the way that she actually lives out her personhood. All of these realities, she thinks, she feels, she wills, she acts. These are the unseen elements of the human spirit that makes the possibility of relationship real. So it should not be a problem for you that you cannot see the Holy Spirit. For we're told of God himself, God is spirit, and true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. That we worship and follow. We gather weekly around a God that we can't see. We become the visible manifestation of a real personality. And if you aren't gathering around a real personality, if you aren't gathering around a God who actually cares and feels and thinks and wills and acts on your behalf, then you have a horribly truncated idea of what the gospel is all about. Because it's not an ideology. It's about a restoration of right relationship. And what we love about one another, what we, what we come to connect, when you say you connected with someone, you aren't saying that you connected with how they look, hopefully. That just turns us into shallow creatures. But what we connect with is our, our hearts. 
the things that we have common ground around. It's what creates real friendship. And so let's think about what the scripture has to say about the spirit in regards to personality. First of all, the human personality thinks because we're made in the image of God and God is a thinking God and the spirit is a thinking spirit. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 11, for what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man, which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Notice that the Holy Spirit has knowledge, but I mean, computers have knowledge. It's not, it's not just information. It's relational, intimate knowledge. The Holy Spirit can make known the heart of God to us because he is one with God in a way that we are not, actually. And I think that this is an important thing because the words of the Spirit is not merely illumination in the mind of the believer, but is himself a person who knows God and reveals God to us as a teacher does. So the Spirit is not a, a knowledge dump by God through, a, through an impersonal medium. We learn of God by God's very presence in our lives through his Holy Spirit. And this is the thing is that the Spirit himself is a teacher and I always say that the Spirit is a perfect teacher, and the issue is not his ability to teach. The issue is our ability to learn. And this is why, if it was true that the Holy Spirit was just a dump upon the human heart where you're just changed or transformed into the likeness of Jesus by being super infused with the knowledge of God, then, then that would actually eliminate the possibility of being a really crummy Christian, which I seem to meet a lot of. Or should I say ignorant Christians, because I see that in myself. Or those moments where I fail in my ability to follow Jesus, where I am not, uh, clearly the Spirit didn't just come and transform me into a perfect man. The Spirit comes as an available teacher, and I am only taught as much as I give time to him as a teacher. My point is, is that we often fail in our ability to grow, not because the Spirit, because God didn't do a good job on transforming you, it's because you haven't done a good job on submitting to his presence in your life. And this is why Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said. He is a personal reality. He is a person who comes to instruct us in the deep things of God, but we actually have to be open to receive from him. You can't have him bring to remembrance what you haven't put in. This is why the Spirit's engagement with the scriptures are so essential, that the word of God is only as healthy as it becomes illuminated by the Spirit. I don't know if you guys remember what it was like to try to read the Bible before you were saved? I do. It was chicken scratch. It was nonsense. It didn't mean anything to me. It was gibberish. But the moment I became born again, the scriptures came alive for me because the spirit, my teacher, began to illuminate my understanding of who God is. And they took on new life. It's possible to read the Bible and it be a dead book in your hands because we need the instruction of the Holy Spirit. He thinks and we need his thought process and he wants to help us think well, but we need to understand that he doesn't think for us. He comes alongside us, empowering us from the inside out. We are the dwelling place for, for the personality, the real presence of the Holy Spirit. Not only does he think, but he wills. 
1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, but one and the same spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. This actually speaks not only to his personality, but it also speaks to his divinity, that the Holy Spirit is sovereign, that he is free to move as he sees fit. Jesus himself said that the wind blows, you don't even know from which direction it's blowing, and so it is with the Spirit of God, that God's Spirit is free to distribute to us, and this is why the gifts of the Spirit really are wrapped up in a singular gift, which is the Spirit himself, who then has the freedom or the sovereignty to distribute his gifts amongst his people that we might be consolidated as a unified body witnessing to the person of Jesus. And we're going to consider, we'll have one whole day to just consider the, the different gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, but the, what you need to understand is that the, there's really one singular gift, and the gift is God's very presence by his Holy Spirit in our lives. The person of the Holy Spirit comes to dwell literally within the human body. We become the very temple of God individually and corporately. And, and this is a powerful reality that the Spirit has to have the authority, the freedom to actually determine what he wants to give to us. He wills it. He gives to each one individually as he wills. He feels as well. Romans 15.30 says this, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit. Notice that. It's not a force, but the love of the Spirit, that the Spirit himself, just as Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, that those who have the Spirit experience the love of Christ because the Spirit loves like Christ loves and like the Father loves. The Spirit comes into our life to make known the very love of God. That's what Romans, Romans tells us, is that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit loves us with the love of God. He loves us perfectly. He feels deeply. And I think that this is important for us because we often actually eradicate feeling in God, not just in the Spirit, but when we think about the Father, when we think about the Son, we forget that we're dealing with a personality and that we being made in the image of God, he feels deeply. He just feels perfectly. Our feelings are flawed, so we don't like to apply feeling to God because we're afraid that feeling leads to fickleness, but his feeling is always anchored in the perfect truth of who he is. And I think this is important because not only does he love us, another passage that describes the feeling of the Holy Spirit is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You can't grieve an impersonal force. You can't offend a force, but you can offend a person. And what grieves the Holy Spirit is when we reduce him to nothing more than a force to be wielded for our own, for our own means, for our own self-centered desires. And what the Spirit wants is control, but we're afraid to give up our autonomy. But isn't the essence of sin a refusal to give up our autonomy? So the Holy Spirit's ability to actually lead us into knowledge, his ability to gift us, his ability to reveal to us the love of God is totally dependent on our ability to acknowledge his very presence and our full surrender to him and his personhood. Not only does he think, not only does he will, not only does he feel, but I think even 
even more importantly, because the natural outcome of those qualities is action. And the Spirit acts. John 14, he brings to remembrance and teaches. John 15, he testifies of Jesus. John 16, he convicts, he guides into all truth and glorifies the Son. 1 Corinthians 2.10, he searches the deep things of God. Romans 8.26, he prays for us. This is a personality. And the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to restore a lost soul to intimate fellowship with God. And I think that this is important for us to understand. Only a personality can do that. But what is the nature of the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it's powerful. Because the Spirit is, because the spirit, is spirit, because he's ruach, breath, or wind, or pneuma, because he's that life-giving personality but can't be seen, the Scripture gives us a series of symbols to help us understand the nature and the activity of the Holy Spirit. And there are seven symbols used of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And I want to just move through those really quickly to help us understand and to set this parameter that we're, we have to begin with the Holy Spirit as the third person in the Trinity. And then we can move back and look next week at the, at the, Old Te- the Spirit works work through the Old Testament. We can begin to see that personality at play, even though uh, there's, there isn't the clarity around it that we have in the New Testament. The New Testament helps explain the Old, and the Old Testament points us toward the New. And so here, in the nature of the Holy Spirit, the first symbol that we see, which is derived actually from the word spirit, is the symbol of wind or breath. In Genesis chapter 2, and I think this is powerful, that we see the activity of the Spirit of God in verse 2, of Genesis, when it says that the spirit brooded, literally hovered, the wind hovered like an eagle hovers, ready to act, hovered over the waters. And then we see in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, it says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his, in, uh, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Does God have lips that he can place upon the mouth, resuscitating man? Can he give life through a, the physical kiss? No, what is meant by this is that literally the spirit of God is an animating force. He's a life-giving reality. In Ezekiel 37, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breathe and breathe on this slain that they may live. John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Acts 2, 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. What does the symbol of wind and breath give us a picture of? Does it not give us, it doesn't just simply give us a picture of life but it gives us a picture of something even more profound than life itself, and that is nearness to the one who holds the keys to life. In fact, in order to have the life of God, we need God's presence. And one of the beautiful things that you see in the Old Testament is that God's literally, his breath, his spirit is what gives life to all that lives. That There is no life without God sustaining. It's the great declaration of the scriptures that life doesn't just exist by chance, but that there is a creator God who is the life-giving God and he breathes his life into his creation. But I think that the powerful thing for us in regards to the spirit's personality is that 
And when you think about the spirit as breath, the picture is in order to feel someone's breath, what do they have to be? Close to us. It's not just life. He doesn't give us life from afar, but he breathes life into us. It, it speaks of nearness. It speaks of intimacy. What a beautiful symbol breath and wind is. The second symbol that is used to the Holy Spirit is that of fire. In Acts chapter 2, verse 3, it says, And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each other. And even uh, John the Baptist saying that, he says, I baptize you with water, but there is one who is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the question is, is, is are those two things meant to be connected as one side speaking of judgment and the other side speaking of regeneration. I think that they actually can be uh, put together because even in Hebrews it says, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God for our God is a consuming what? Fire. And what is the picture of fire? What does fire do for the believer? That spiritual fire. That fire, fire is, a, is a picture of something that, in, that inflames us, empowers us. But it's also a picture of purification, it, it burns us clean. And I think that the Spirit's activity is not simply to give us life and to give us intimacy, closeness, to remind us that God is with us, but he is also the Holy Spirit, which means he comes into our lives to, to purify us, and that purification is what brings about our empowerment. In fact, it's, it's interesting that we see the Spirit's anointing upon people throughout scriptures, and we'll look at this and consider this next week, is that it's actually possible to have the empowerment without the character. Uh, and, and this shows that the Spirit can even function through unclean vessels, uh, that the Spirit comes as fire and power and purifying realities. But the third symbol is that of water. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And what did Jesus say to the woman at the well? I, he goes, if you had asked me, I would have given you water where you would never thirst again. And there is this reality not, that goes that's different than purification, that's that reality of cleansing and refreshing. And I think that that is so necessary that the charisma, when we talk about charismatic, the, the, the Greek word charisma, where we get it, is, is that empowerment, that in supernatural infusing uh, that refreshes us and it actually energizes our lives in such a way that we can move out and uh, in, in that we can consistently come back to God as a source of life when we can continue to press in. I don't know about you, but the world right now can be exhausting. <laughs> it's tiring. The news exhausts me. The traffic exhausts me. The, the, tyranny, the tyranny that I see arising um, in the world around us, it, all of it can create this sense of claustrophobia. It can bring us so far down, and it can bring us to a place where we feel like we can't breathe. And the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit is he comes to refresh us and to remind us that, that though it may feel like things are getting worse, which the Scripture actually tells us they will, that Jesus is actually victorious that he is actually king. We need the Spirit's refreshing. What about this symbol? 
the symbol of the dove. The dove is used in John chapter 1, verse 32, as well in the other gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism. But we are told that in John bore witnessing, I saw the Spirit do what? Descend from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And what is the dove an emblem of it? The dove was a sacrificial animal, that, and, it, and the dove in, uh, in the ark story was, was a picture of God's, uh, God's peace that he had brought upon the earth, that he would no longer flood the earth. The dove brings back the branch in his mouth, the olive branch, and the dove becomes a symbol for us of gentle. The dove is a gentle creature, like, like the lamb. They're, they're the two sacrificial, primary sacrificial animals are extremely Gentile, docile creatures, harmless creatures. And the spirit, for all of its, all of its wild wind and its burning fire, is also brings us the gentleness and the peace of God. It's like uh, Lucy in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when she asks if Aslan is safe. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan's safe? No, he is good, but he is not safe. There is a paradox in the work of the Spirit, the Spirit who convicts, who transforms, who empowers, who purifies, is also the Spirit who comforts. And I think that that's important for us to understand. The fifth symbol, so in the last service, I said this, and a group of girls started laughing at me, because the fifth symbol is a seal. Not, they thought I meant the animal, and they wanted to know where in Scripture. Like, yes, the Holy Spirit is, <laughs> no, that's not a seal as in having sealed us, not, not the animal. I just want to clarify up front. And then I kept that, and then immediately... When they laughed at me, I, the, the paranoia of any public speaker is I immediately checked to see if my pants were unzipped or something because I couldn't figure out why they were laughing at me. 2 Corinthians 1.22, who has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts is a guarantee. The Spirit as a seal is a, is a symbol of the Spirit's assuring work. The fact that when we are born again, the Spirit actually comes to assure the believer that we belong to God and that God actually belongs to us. The Spirit is not content with ambiguity in the Christian's life. The Holy Spirit is a teacher, is, a, is one who comes alongside us and comes actually to dwell within us to remind us that we have been born again, to eradicate the excuses that I can't do this, I can't do this, you don't understand my broken past, you don't understand where I've come from. And you say, you don't understand, I was born this way. The Spirit assures us that we've been born again, that we belong to another, that we are safe in the hands of Jesus. And this is why Paul is quick to clarify that statement, if indeed the Spirit dwells within you. That's why I think that it's, that the, the, this trend that I saw within the church over the last 10 years where Christianity is driven by questions rather than answers is a completely unbiblical reality. The idea that you, should, that you can never actually know if you're saved is foolishness because the scripture actually says that the spirit comes into our lives to assure us that we have been purchased at a price. We are actually to know experientially the realities of Jesus and we know that by the person of the Holy Spirit who actually dwells with us. I would never preach if I didn't actually believe that the Spirit was with me because I am terrified every week to preach. This morning, I was so sick to my stomach to start a new series. And, I, and the reminder that I'm going to talk about one 
who's actually with me, hopefully empowering me to talk about him while I'm talking with him and to experience his ability to bring any sort of logical sense out of my mouth. The fact that I have made sense even for one minute to you should be an absolute, just, you should just breathe in, in relief. Jesus does exist. If Josh White is my pastor, Jesus exists. If I understood, it's, I am a gift to you who are much wiser uh, that, that the Spirit comes to assure us, to empower us in ways that we could never have imagined, never have hoped for, never have believed it's possible to be redeemed out of our brokenness. The sixth symbol is that of oil. And oil is always utilized as kind of a symbol of God's very Spirit, His presence. Proverbs twenty twenty seven it says, "'The Spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord.'" Isn't that an interesting statement? Um, searching all the inner depths of his heart. It's a, strange, it's a strange proverb, but it basically pictures the man like w- that we are a lamp, uh, and a lamp is only as good as, uh, as, as its um, ability to be filled with oil. You can't light a lamp. A classic oil lamp requires oil for it to actually burn. You can be a lamp without oil, but you can't function like a lamp. And the picture is, is that the oil is God's very presence, illuminating, inflaming, um, burning. The, the picture of oil is, is God's presence in his children's lives. It speaks of anointing and illumination. And then the final symbol, maybe the most controversial symbol, but it is a symbol nonetheless, uh, is that of wine. In Joel chapter 3, verse 18, uh, we're given one of the positive pictures of wine in Scripture. And it says, And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, and the water in the valley of Acacias. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Others mocking said on the day of Pentecost, when the, when the disciples became spirit-filled, what did it say? They are full of new wine. They were acting in a way that they were under some kind of influence other than their normal behavior. And that was, and I think that it's really horrible when that is used as an excuse for erratic behavior. Uh, the, the, the point is, is that they were saying things, what, what caused the people to mock them is what they were saying about Jesus. The moment they became filled with the Spirit, their desire was to point the world toward this Jesus who you just crucified as a thief, is the Son of God. And they're like, you guys are crazy. You're acting drunk. Who would say that? And they were filled with joy. And there was a sense of what comes when you come to, have you ever been to like Mexico on spring break? What is the symbol of, 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 the, uh, of spring break in Mexico? It's those girls gone wild infomercials. But it's, a, they, they, it's, a, it's an overabundant sense of celebration. And it can be out of control. But that's, that's not the point here. The point of wine as a symbol of the Holy Spirit is a point that it is often used symbolically of joy. In the Psalms, when it talks about, about wine, and, they, and, and often in the prophets, it speaks of it in the sense of joy. But it also speaks of it when we, when we deal with it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and Acts chapter 2, when it says, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He purposefully is creating a parallel between wine and being Spirit-filled. And what he's saying is, what influence will you be under? What influence will you be under? 
And so the Spirit is here to influence us, to anoint and illuminate our hearts, to assure us, to bring peace to our lives, to cleanse us and refresh us, to purify and empower us, to bring life and intimacy with God into our lives. All of these symbols actually develop for us a robust understanding of the Spirit's activity. And so I want us to understand this in closing, to move back to the Nicene Creed. We believe, credo, we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord. The Creed declares that the Holy Spirit is the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the Spirit, just in case you thought the church fathers might, might have been pulling that out of thin air. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When we recognize the personhood, the lordship of the Holy Spirit, this is what brings us into the freedom of the gospel. We believe that the Holy Spirit, the giver, is the giver of life. This statement, too, teaches the deity of the Holy Spirit. For John chapter 6, verse 63, once again, the church fathers were drawing directly out of the scriptures. And what does it say? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, once again, the Spirit gives life. The third statement in the Nicene Creed, we believe in the Holy Ghost who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And once again, John chapter 15, verse 26, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then the fourth statement of the Nicene Creed, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified. And Jesus said, God is spirit, and true worshipers of him must worship in spirit and in truth. Notice the entire Trinity is involved in that statement. We worship our God who is spirit by the power of the spirit through the truth who is Jesus himself. We worship God by God and through God. You guys, to be a spirit-filled community means first and foremost, we submit ourselves to the lordship of the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that we are submitted to the true spirit, because we're called the test of spirits, is that when we submit ourselves to the lordship of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit immediately points us to the person of Jesus. And when he comes, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said. And so we shouldn't be ashamed that we are a Jesus-centered church because that's the way the Holy Spirit wants us to function. But he doesn't want to be diminished as well to simply a force that we can wield for our own good. To truly elevate the person of Jesus, we have to submit to the empowerment of the Spirit. And so may we recognize him as he is, the third person in the Godhead itself. There is one God, one Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen?